it's good to be here. Um, it would have been interesting to be somewhere else, but it's always nice to be home, isn't it? We're going to hear some words from Psalm 36. Lord, your constant love reaches the heavens. Your faithfulness extends to the skies. Your righteousness is towering like the mountains. Your justice is like the depths of the sea. People and animals are in your care. How precious, O God, is your constant love. We find protection under the shadow of your wings. We feast on the abundant food you provide. You let us drink from the river of your goodness. You are the source of all life. And because of your light, we see the light. Continue to love those who know you and to do good to those who are righteous. And now let's come to God in prayer. We are here to praise you, God of all creation. You have given us the gift of life and showered upon us so many blessings that we can never count them all. On this first day of a new week, we come with thankfulness to offer you our worship. Songs we sing together, ideas we share, and words we pray. We come to lay down any regrets and sorrows from the week just ended, to ask you to forgive and renew us, so that we might show your love even more in the days ahead. We come in the name of Jesus, who shared our humanity in all its frailty. We come in the name of the Holy Spirit, who comforts and guides us in all our living. We come in your name, the God who is, is and was and always will be. Amen. The first reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me. And I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on a pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. And the second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the servant called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. If you were going to write a book to tell people about Jesus... Where would you begin? Would you, like Matthew and Luke, tell a story about a mysteriously significant birth? Or would you, like Mark, begin with something about John the Baptist? Perhaps with John, you would want to set the scene with something deeply theological theological and exquisitely poetic. Which parts of the story would you include and which would you exclude? And why would that be? If you've ever watched a film of the life of Jesus, if you've ever looked at a children's storybook about the life of Jesus, these are questions that have been asked by the people who wrote the stories and who produced the films. You have to choose what the story is you want to tell and what you will include and what you will exclude. And the same question must have faced the gospel writers as they selected from a a diversity of oral and written accounts which ones would fit with the story they wanted to tell about Jesus. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, these were far from passive scribes. 
They didn't just sit down and God said, right, write this, and they wrote it. No. They were people who listened, who read, who thought, and I'm sure prayed, as they selected which stories to include in their version of the good news of Jesus Christ. The four Gospels can be likened to four portraits, each by a different artist, each with its own emphasis and perspective, and each with unique truths to tell us about Jesus. It's a sad fact, in my opinion, that both believers and sceptics sometimes forget this and become far too concerned with trying to sort out the inconsistencies between the accounts instead of realising what each one, as well as the four together, offers us. This week, the lectionary, which we are broadly following, takes a break from Luke's account and turns instead to the beginning of John's Gospel. In fact, if you were to look up the lectionary, as for the current few weeks, it actually leapfrogs the beginning of Luke chapter 4, leaving that to the beginning of Lent, which does sort of make sense because it fits with what we think Lent is all about. But it then gives them the challenge of thinking, well, what do we put in instead as a gospel reading? The choice of John 2 has got to be significant. It's not just a convenient way of avoiding doing a bit that you want to wait for a few weeks for. At least that's my view. Each of the synoptic gospels records the baptism of Jesus by John, symbolizing his self-chosen identification with humanity and his participation in the work of repentance and transformation. And although it's not explicit, it is strongly implied in the fourth gospel. This is what we looked at last week. But then something significant happens that shapes the trajectory of each story. Mark, generally accepted to be the earliest gospel and noted for its brevity, records the baptism, devotes two sentences to Jesus being tempted by Satan and moves swiftly to the call of the first disciples and a series of exorcisms and healings, all in page one. In fact, all in chapter one. This is Jesus identified as a healer and a worker of miracles. The temptation story is not a big deal for Mark. Matthew takes a different tack. He gives us an extended account of Jesus' temptations and then goes on to note that he began to preach a gospel of repentance very similar to that of John. Then we had the call of the first disciples, a few healings, and then this extensive piece that runs through three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew's Jesus is heading towards a teaching ministry as one who fulfills the work of Moses. So that's a bit different from Mark's take on it. And then Luke. After the baptism story, he goes off and gives us a long genealogy before giving us the account of Jesus being tempted in a different order from that that Matthew uses. And then gives us the story of Jesus preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. Nazareth, I can never say that word. 
And this sets the tone for his gospel with a keen emphasis on the principles of justice, liberation and wholeness. And that's something we will come to again in a few weeks when we reach that passage. So for both Matthew and Luke, the temptation story is quite important and they devote time to it. And lastly, we come to John. Where is John's account of Jesus being tempted? Ah, there isn't one. Strikingly absent. Read John from front to back. There is no account of the temptation. After the implied baptism in chapter 1, we have an account of the first disciples joining Jesus. Very different from the story in the synoptics, which has them as fishermen who Jesus calls. In in John, they see him and John sends some of them over to Jesus and others uh, come and tell their friends. And then we get a story based around a whole series of signs. Each story having a lot of layers for those who can see and understand them. And the style very much reflects the philosophies of the day in which it was written. You need to be a much cleverer person than I am to understand all the layers, but it's a very complex and clever gospel. So each of the four gospel writers has chosen to start the story the way he does because he wants us to grasp something special about Jesus, something unique that will inform our understanding of him. To be honest, it was this stark difference between John and the synoptics that really struck me as I was reflecting on the readings this week. I found myself wondering what it is that John is trying to tell us that means he chooses to omit this hugely significant account of Jesus being tempted in incredibly powerful ways. And so... I decided I would set alongside each other these two passages, Luke's account of the temptation with John's account of the first sign. Because maybe, as we try to hold those two in tension, we discover something new that God wants to say to us. Maybe as we spot the differences, we find something about a balance between extravagance on the one hand and temperance on the other hand. A balance between abundance and abstinence. I wonder if, as we look at these passages, they invite us to look at our own attitudes afresh, to say, well, where is it that we put our emphasis? Is it on sin and temptation, or is it on grace and abundance and all that sort of thing? What is it that drives us day by day? How do we avoid drifting into unquestioning legalism or dogmatism at one extreme or dreary self-righteous priggishness or demoralized self-loathing or any other extreme and unhelpful and unhealthy thing that quite frankly makes Christianity not very attractive? Where is our emphasis? Is our emphasis on being, avoiding doing things wrong so that we become rather boring? Or is our emphasis so much on God's mercy and goodness that we kind of equally don't think about anything? And as long as we don't hurt anything and everyone's happy, that's all right, isn't it? Which way do we lead? Or have we found that middle that is healthy? Neither of the readings answer that question or that set of questions. 
that perhaps we can begin to tease out some of the complexity and mystery of how faith gets worked out in our lives if we look at them. Let's start with the temptations of Jesus. It appears, according to the uh, commentaries that I've looked at this week, generally accepted that the order in Matthew has been changed by Luke. He's switched around the second two. To get really anxious and stressy about that is to miss the point, quite frankly. Because neither of the writers is saying, this is exactly how it happened in this order, in this time frame. That's not what they're about. As far as we know, nobody saw what happened. And neither are they saying, these are the three and only three temptations that Jesus faced. In fact, Luke quite clearly says that there were other and quite possibly ongoing temptations that Jesus faced. What we have is three examples who have been selected because they make really important points about different kinds of temptation. Now, my suspicion is most of you have heard lots of sermons on the temptation, so I'm not going to be saying anything new, but I'm going to say it anyway. The first temptation, the temptation to look after number one. A perfectly reasonable desire for food to assuage hunger. A perfectly reasonable desire to have a drink because you're thirsty symbolizes the potential for selfish materialism. As if satisfying our needs and then our wants will bring us fulfillment and would make everybody fulfilled, in fact, if you extended that out to everybody. If everybody could have as much food and drink as they wanted and a nice house and a nice car and everything else, they'd be happy. It's not going to work. Looking after number one, following into the trap of material satisfaction, isn't going to sort things out. The next temptation in the Lucan order is a temptation for fame and power. The desire to succeed and to make a difference perhaps seems innocuous. And especially for those of us who are quite ambitious and want to get on and make a difference, we might feel a little uncomfortable with that one. But I think what is being pointed out to us here is the pressures that come with ambition to conform to other values, to get involved in dodgy dealings or corrupt practices, the fiddling of timesheets and expenses or whatever it is that are the rocky road to corruption. And what Jesus says here is, I'm not going to go down that way. I'm not going to go the worldly way, the satanic way in in, uh, Luke's language. First and foremost, I'm going to give my allegiance to God. And then his third temptation is this one, to perform some spectacular supernatural feat. Right at the centre of the religious place. The culmination of selfishness and self-aggrandizement. Go and stand on the temple and jump off and God will send angels to catch you. Well, that would show them who God is, wouldn't it? Some zap, pow, whop, kind of Superman kind of a God. No. This, too, is rejected. This is not the way. How dare anybody demand that God prove by supernatural means just who God is? Uh Uh-uh. 
So Jesus is rejecting three specific kinds of temptation. One about self, one about the world, and one about kind of religious conjuring tricks. What the gospel writer has done here with these three very graphic illustrations is to tell us something about Jesus' values and motives. That he wasn't about materialistic self-interest. He wasn't about world domination by fair means or foul. And he was not about conjuring tricks to demonstrate his divinity. I think it's useful for us to be reminded of that as his followers. Because I suspect those same temptations in some way or other are present for us too. The temptation to acquire more wealth and more possessions as if that will make us happy. The temptation to achieve acclaim or even fame. To achieve power and respect with all the temptations to dodginess that that begins. Even the temptation to be perceived as especially spiritual or holy or more is me slightly when people talk about me as in any of those terms. How do we measure up? How much of the temptation affects us and how? So Luke gives us this Jesus who identifies completely with our humanity, who is tempted in every way as we are. John ignores all that. He's not interested. What he does is give us a wonderful and complicated account of the wedding at Cana, something that nobody else even mentions. You won't find it in any of the other Gospels. So is it forcing things too far to keep those temptations in mind as we look at that story? Maybe I'm forcing the issue, but anyway, here goes. The wedding feast is underway, and the wine is running out, which will have real implications for everybody present at the feast. This isn't just a sit-down dinner for carefully chosen guests, but a week-long jamboree of huge community significance. If you understand Jewish law, you will understand why they have seven days of parties, because it keeps the groom occupied. Everybody is involved. But if the wine runs out, there'll be nothing left to drink, and real physical thirst will be experienced. Somebody will have to go and fetch something to drink, at least some water. But it's even more than just the physical facts there. If the wine runs out, the bridegroom is going to be the laughingstock of the whole community. He will be put to shame, because quite frankly, he has failed. And no one will forget in years to come that he was the one who couldn't even organise a wedding feast. Maybe he couldn't organise a proverbial, who knows. Unless something happens, unless somebody acts quickly, this is going to be a social disaster. So already we've got something about physical needs, already we've got something about social expectations. And Mary turns to Jesus and says, come on son, you do something. Well, it doesn't say it quite like that, but that's the, the gist of it. To our ears, his response is at best curt and at worst downright rude. It's nothing to do with me. And anyway, my time hasn't come yet. 
So doesn't he care? Is he just going to let this poor bridegroom be disgraced and everyone talk about him for years to come? Some of the commentators suggest that what Mary may have been saying is, now come along Jesus, get some of your friends to go and buy some wine. Because seemingly the custom and practice would have meant that everybody who was invited contributed to the food and the drink of the wedding. So maybe that's where church bring and shares lunches come from, who knows. But the idea that this was just a human thing, that Mary might say, come on, off you go. You get down to the off-license on the corner and get some more wine or whatever the first century equivalent was. And so what happens next is quite surprising. The servants are sent to fetch water to fill the stone jars, which would usually hold water for ritual washing. So these are religiously significant jars. This was the water that you washed to cleanse yourself in order to be able to take part in religious worship, religious ceremony. And they're huge! And it will take the servants several hours to carry the water back. Something like 120 to 180 gallons of water. Do you remember those old maths problems about how long will it take two men to fill a bath at whatever speed it is? It's a bit like that, I think. A ridiculous amount of water is collected and put in these jars until it's right up to the brim. It's a detail that John chooses to notice. Then what happens in the meantime, but it would take a while. But eventually, the head steward is sent to draw off some of the water and it's turned into wine. And not just any old vino plonco from Tesco's, but the absolute best wine you could get. I don't know who a posh vintner is, but wherever it is, that's what it would be. The bridegroom has saved face. Phew. But he probably hadn't got a clue what's been going on in the background with these servants disappearing backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards with buckets of water. But he has no idea. It's only the servants, the lowest of the low, who know where this wine came from. And so we have a miraculous sign. Somehow ordinary water poured into religiously significant stone pots has become enough wine to leave the whole village drunk for weeks on end. It does say drunk in the scriptures. Did you spot it? Oh dear. So what does that do for us without temperance or abstinence? Mm. Copious quantities of booze. We have face saved for a man who probably wasn't even aware of how close he came to the biggest social catastrophe of his life. We have a whole community who can enjoy fine wine when all they actually need, if truth be told, is fresh water. And in fact, after that wine, they probably needed plenty of water. What this story is about, amongst other things, is about divine extravagance the ludicrous undertaking that happened to make sure that one marriage feast in one community, in one town, in one little country, didn't end in disaster. It's just crazy. Way more than they needed. And what the Gospel of John does is to show us signs that point to different attributes of the character of God revealed in Christ, here showing us that he is outrageous. And he just 
chucks abundant generosity there for everybody. Here is the counter, I think, to the temptation to make temperance with its potential to become boringness the only measure of authenticity and righteousness. Because here we see that the Jesus who refused to think about number one, who refused to conform to the ways of the world, and actually said, I'm not going to do publicity stunts, is the same one who transforms this very private potential disaster into a joyful celebration. Shame and disgrace have gone. But he hasn't drawn attention to himself. He just told them to get the water, fill up the pots, and do what they did. We need to heed the example of Jesus as we resist temptations, attitudes, and actions that dishonor God. That is absolutely true. But we need to keep that in balance with this amazing image of God whose generosity is immeasurable. The God who gives abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. The God who gave wine to the people at Cana. So yes, we need to be alert. Of course we need to be alert. But alert also to the ways in which God brings hope and joy and delight to all. We come now to the time when we are privileged to pray for others. Let us pray. Creator of the universe, God of wisdom and compassion and love, we humbly ask that you will listen to our prayers for others. We pray for the victims of this world, for those suffering not for anything they have done or not done, but because they can be used by violent men for their own purposes. We think in particular of the situation in Algeria. We pray for the hostages held prisoner. Give them strength to endure this ordeal. We pray for their families who wait in fear, wondering if they will ever see their loved ones again. Give those families patience and let both hostages and families feel your comfort and reassurance made manifest that all will ultimately be well. We pray for the governments involved in this conflict. Aid them in their decisions. Help them to bring good out of ill, to quench this flame of misguided religious fervour before it becomes a conflagration swallowing up country after country. We pray for the terrorists who use their religion as a weapon in political matters. Make manifest your compassion and love to them and show them a better way, the eloquence of the tongue rather than the lock and load loquacity of the gun and the missile. We pray in thankfulness for the soul of Peter Barnes, the pilot who managed to steer his helicopter away from dwelling blocks in London as his machine crashed. Let those who love him 
know he is celebrated for his courage and that he rests safe in the arms of our Lord. We pray for the homeless who wander our streets, freezing in body from the coldness of the elements, freezing in their hearts and minds, for they feel themselves outcast in a world they think does not care. Teach them to accept help when it is offered, to engage with the goodness you pour out on your latter-day disciples. We pray for those who self-destruct, whether it be with drink or drugs, for their families who suffer along with them. Help those addicted to resist temptation, no matter how beguiling their substances of choice. Momentarily, the drink or the drugs seem to take them to a happier place, but when the effect wears off, they are left in a wilderness of their own making. Remind them, dear God, that though the way be hard and that they may fall again and again, that steep road they walk will eventually lead to a sweet green place full of life where they may rebuild what they have destroyed. We pray for those of our fellowship who are ill or recovering from illness. Let them be conscious of your healing touch, healing which is not always of the body, but can be of the spirit and is as equally comforting. We pray for those caring lovingly for members of their family or friends whose minds are aging faster than their bodies. Truly the sick are already in your tender care, but those who love them and care for them need your supporting arm to sustain and wipe away a tear when a dear one no longer recognises a face or name. We pray for our athletes who give us pleasure in their achievements. Help them to resist the desire to do better by false means, no matter how lucrative the results or how pleasing the praise of the crowds. Let them have due pride in their God-given skill or swiftness. We pray for those thrown out of work, victims of a fast-changing commercial system. Help them and the authorities to think of ways of improving their situations that they can provide for their dependents. We pray for the aged, forced to choose between food and heating, and for our government faced with a terrible balance the need to cut benefits because of a fragile economy and compassion for those whose only fault is to live long. Remind those who govern that the clock ticks for them also and that in this increasingly changeable world, a position of privilege and wealth is easily overthrown. Finally, in this fresh new year, We pray for our church, the place in which we meet to praise you as a body of worshippers. 
let us continue to try and serve our community with enthusiasm and love, making manifest your qualities in our service to others. We pray together, empowered by our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing God holds us in the hollow of his hand. God is love. God be thanked. God be praised. Amen.